Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you four different connecting stories. So get yourself some coffee and let's dive in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Angela Hammond was a 20-year-old woman known as Angie to everybody, who was working in a bank and attending classes at Central Missouri State University. She was engaged to a man named Rob Schaefer, who I believe she had met in high school. On April 4th, 1991, Angie and Rob had gone to a barbecue together. And after this barbecue was over, she dropped Rob off at his house around 10 o'clock, told him that she would call him in a couple hours. Around 11.45 that night, Angie does call her fiancé Rob from a telephone booth in a parking lot outside the food barn store in Clinton, Missouri. She tells him that she's too tired to go meet up with him, and so she's just going to go back home and take a bath instead. She, on this phone call, also tells Rob that there is a man circling the parking lot that she's standing it on the phone in his old truck and she felt like it was kind of suspicious this man did end up parking his truck near the phone booth that she was in and gets out of it carrying a flashlight and he starts like pointing the flashlight everywhere looking around and she assumed that he was had lost something and was looking for it so she is doing what she can to describe to rob what this man looks like because like I said, she felt uncomfortable in this situation. And so she described him as a filthy bearded man in a pickup truck. On this phone call, Rob ends up hearing Angie scream and then the line goes dead. So immediately Rob gets in his car and drives to the phone booth. As he's heading that way, he ends up passing a late 1960s or early 1970s green Ford F-150 pickup truck and as he's passing it he hears angie scream his name out of the truck oh my gosh so he immediately turns around and follows the vehicle for about a mile until the transmission on his car fails and he his car just stops and he just gets stuck where he was that's so sad yeah i can't even imagine that you know feeling so close to that situation And feeling so close to Angie, but then something completely out of your control happening. Mm -hmm. No kidding. Rob does what he can. He, which honestly, I have to say in this situation, Rob and Angie did everything correct. Angie gave verbal description of the man that was making her uncomfortable. And Rob did his best to take into account the 
make and the model and the year of the vehicle. And mm-hmm. he also noticed that on the back window of the truck, he saw a decal of water or an outdoor scene, something like that. But it was okay. completely covering the rear window. Obviously, it was dark, so he couldn't see a whole lot, but he could tell that it was there. He said that there was also possible damage to the left front fender of this vehicle. There were witnesses that had also said that they had seen a Caucasian man driving a similar truck near the telephone booth at the time that Angie disappeared. So now there's three different, more than three people, but Angie, her fiance Rob, and then these other witnesses, all three of them, these situations are putting the same man at the scene of the crime. Rob did report this to police. He gave them all of the information. They did find Angie's car abandoned in the parking lot that she had gone missing from. But the man that had taken her was never identified. They did also describe him. He was wearing coveralls and a dark colored baseball cap. He wore eyeglasses. He had a beard. He had a mustache. They were able to draw a composite sketch from the witnesses, from what they had seen, and based on how Angie described him. But that was all that they got out of it. Wow. It's so many good identifying features that everyone picked up on. But aside from the truck, it also just kind of sounds like your typical country guy, right? Yeah, I I agree. Now, we do have, like I said, a a very in-depth description of this man's Mm -hmm. truck, aside from the license plate, which... It didn't, I didn't see if the license plate was ever, like if Rob had memorized that at all, but it's possible that he had and they just didn't release some of that information. Sure. So Angie was never seen again, still to this day. Um, And it's been over 30 years since she went missing. Obviously, and I say obviously because this is number one, kind of what police immediately suspect. Rob was initially a suspect, in this disappearance he was cooperative with any everything he submitted to a polygraph test he gave them all the details and within a week they had cleared his name of the disappearance which i think is definitely a good choice sure and i think they could have definitely confirmed that like his car had broken down and with all the other witnesses in their you know descriptions matching i'm sure there were many ways to kind of like write him off the list Oh, absolutely. And yeah, because there were so many other witnesses, like you said, that I don't think that police could have ever come up with any sort of story that made sense. Since then have been multiple unconfirmed sightings of Angie in multiple different states and also in Canada. But like I said, nothing's been confirmed. However, on the 30th anniversary of her disappearance, which would have been in 2021, there were some new details provided that police had a new theory. So I don't know if, I don't think that they've considered this a cold case. I think that they're still kind of actively searching this. Their new theory is that Angie was actually mistaken for another woman. So apparently there was another woman in this area whose father had been involved in a bunch of legal activity. So he had acted as as an informant in a narcotics case, and he'd received a note threatening the life of his daughter. Oh, okay. So the note that he'd received said, hello, no, and then whatever was next was is like blacked out, which I don't know if that was supposed to be like 
N-O, and it's supposed to be like number something. But it says, we know who you are. No blacked out. People like you deserve what you get. We know where your foxy daughter is at. She will see us soon. Tell blacked out. She has our deepest sympathy in her further loss. Goodbye. And then has a blackout again. So maybe it's just like the names of everybody is in it, which the daughter's name was also Angela. Okay. Which is why That's police believe. Yeah. Which is why police believe that there's possible. Also, the ransom note, which I'll post on our social media, looks full on like a ransom note. Like, it's literally when you take things out of a magazine and you cut out the letters and you, like, glue it to a piece of paper. So, besides the note, was there other stuff that made them think maybe it was a mistaken identity thing? Well, so, yes. Like I said, they have the same name. The note was sent the same night that Angie was abducted and they were in this like in a very similar area. Okay. So as of April 2021, I couldn't see anything from 2022, but as of last year, they were still investigating this theory to see if potentially it was somebody in relation to this other man's testimony. Did anything ever happen to this other Angela, the daughter Angela? I didn't see anything that ever happened to her. So I don't know if maybe they didn't want to test their luck a second time, I guess. If if it is yeah. a case of mistaken identity, maybe they were like, we don't want to go near that again because yeah, now it's too suspicious. So for Angie's description, she was 20 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was a white female who was about four foot 11, five foot tall, 120 to 140 pounds with light brown eyes and brown hair. She had a scar on her upper lip. And at the time of her disappearance, she was actually four months pregnant. When she went missing, she was wearing a white shirt with black spots, black splacks and tennis shoes. There is a $16,000 reward being offered for leads in this case. If you have any information regarding her disappearance, you can contact the Clinton Police Department at 660-885-5561. So that's all the information I have about Angie's disappearance. However, her case is believed to have been linked to two other cases in Missouri, Cheryl Ann Kenny and Trudy Darby. So I'm going to tell you guys about these two ladies now. So about a month before the disappearance of Angie... A, on February 27th, 1991, Cheryl Kenny was working at a convenience store in Nevada, Missouri. She usually worked until midnight, but it was really slow that night. So she had decided to close the store a little early. So about 10 o'clock at night, her time card shows her clocking out. And then she sets the store alarm at 1017 that evening. However, Cheryl doesn't ever return home. And is never heard from again. Police end up finding her white Chevy abandoned in the store parking lot. And obviously that's suspicious. So they have a lot that they're trying to kind of look into. They noticed that she had clocked out at 10. Store alarm set at 1017. So they're like, well, that's when she left. So who last saw her? So they realized that the janitor from the store left a few minutes before Cheryl had closed up. And when he left, he reported that no customer cars were in the parking lot, but there was a male customer in the store that he didn't recognize when he was leaving. 
He stated that it wasn't unusual for random customers to be in there, people that they didn't know, because there were lots of hotels within walking distance of that store. So he said it was pretty typical for people to just walk over to that convenience store. Still to this day, the customer that was in that store hasn't been identified, and it's unclear if he had anything to do with Cheryl's disappearance. So was when was Cheryl's disappearance again? Cheryl's disappearance was February 27th, 1991. Okay, so very close to when Angela had gone missing, which was April 4th. And were the towns close to each other? So they were about an hour apart from each other, the two towns. Oh, wow. So very close. Mm-hmm. It is said, too, that obviously Cheryl had closed the store down and locked everything up. So it's highly unlikely that any customers were in the store when she was leaving because obviously you wouldn't leave anybody in the store. But that doesn't mean that there could have been somebody outside of the building. There were two witnesses that were in the area that came forward and said that they heard a woman scream right around the 10, 20 time at night, which is when Cheryl would have been getting into her car. Initially, the witnesses didn't go to the police until several days later because they ended up hearing about the disappearance and they're like, oh, well, we should probably let the police know. There was some speculation that Cheryl could have potentially left on her own accord because her mom had recently died and she'd been really upset. But when she went missing, she was only carrying six dollars with her and to go missing, she would have left her husband, her two children and her sick father behind. So seemingly very unlikely. We also have the witnesses saying that they heard a scream. Yeah, and her car was found abandoned. So how far could she have really gotten? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of things that don't really make a lot of sense. I think the main thing, obviously, that connects these two cases so far is really the random disappearance part. The fact that a vehicle's left behind. They're taken around the same time of night in a parking lot. And then they're an hour apart from each other. And only months apart, too. Yeah. Did Do you know if they ever got a description of the guy who was in the store at the end of the night? I couldn't find anything that had a description of what the man looked like who was in the store with her that evening. But yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of similarities between these two cases. Yes. If police have any description of this man, it's not been released. The details regarding Cheryl is she was 30 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was a white female who was a five foot six to five foot seven, 117 pounds. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a blue pullover sweatshirt, a blue denim jacket, blue jeans, and white LA gear sneakers. She had light brown hair, green eyes. Her hair was bleached blonde at the tips at the time of her disappearance. She also had mole removal scars on her chest and upper left arm and a scar on her wrist. She also wore glasses with tan frames. If you have any information regarding her disappearance, you can contact the Nevada Police Department at 417-448-2710. So the next story is about Trudy Darby, who went missing on January 19th, 1991. So this is a little over a month before Cheryl went missing and the other one that's potentially connected. I will say this one has more answers than the other two have. And I struggled to see exactly the connection with this one. 
at the time, Trudy was 42 years old and she was working at the K&D convenience store in Max Creek, Missouri. So this is about three hours from Nevada, Missouri, and about three hours from Clinton, Missouri. So think of it like a triangle and Max Creek is the tip of the triangle, kind of. On January 19th, 1991, around 10 o'clock at night, she calls her son from the store that she's working at and tells him that two suspicious men are outside. He ends up coming to the store and he gets there within 10 minutes. And when he arrives, Trudy is nowhere to be found. However, her car, her coat and her purse were all still in the store. The register was also open and there were $200 missing. So already a little different from the previous ones. Yes, something's actually been taken. The robbery happened, I mean, still the same time of night, but it was an actual robbery and the kidnapping happened inside the store instead of out in the parking lot. Two days later, there was some blood and hair found on a gravel road near the Little Nyangwa River. There were also shell casings found nearby. They ran some DNA testing on this, and it was determined that the hair and the blood both belonged to Trudy. And later that same day, her body was discovered along the banks of the river, and it was determined that she had been raped and shot twice in the head. Once again, very different from the other two that we've covered, because Cheryl and Angie's body had never been found if they were murdered. And the robbery and... I mean, it's three hours away. It's in the same area. But the next things I'm going to tell you make me question how police really think that they're connected. So the two men, obviously, that Trudy had called her son about, immediate suspects by the police. They're very interested. They want to know who these people are because these are the last people to have known to see Trudy. So they start questioning local sex offenders, convicted criminals in the area. Nothing is identified initially but they do think that because of like where her body was found that whoever had killed her lived in the area four years later in may of 1995 police actually make an arrest in relation to trudy's murder so they arrest half brothers jesse rush who was 20 and marvin chaney who was 34 and they charge both of them with trudy's murder At the time of her murder, they were both living in the area and they had been stopped for speeding near the store that she was working at on the night of her abduction. It's also reported that Jesse had supposedly bragged and confessed to three of his friends that him and his brother had been responsible for Trudy's murder. Okay, seems pretty open and shut case. I I would agree. But this is why I don't... I'm not seeing the connection, really, other than it was a young girl working at a store. Exactly. So when you go to the Charlie Project page or the Doe Project page or Mm -hmm. any of the pages, they all, like, connect the three of these. And they're, like, they they think that they're all connected with each other. And I don't know if it's all just because it happened around the same time and in the same state, but... General vicinity. When were the brothers arrested again? May of 95. So four years later. I mean, in theory, if you want to go that route, it would be maybe they, because this one happened before the other two, maybe they got better at committing crimes. But also at the same time, I mean, at least with Angela, there's specifically one guy 
And did they say anything about the brothers having a truck that would match the description of the truck from Angela's? I didn't see anything like that. I actually saw that they had a car and not a truck. Yeah, I just, I don't really see the connection there. Yeah. So kind of what triggered Jesse and Marvin being arrested was in September of 93, one of Jesse's friends calls the police and says, Jesse just confessed to me that he murdered this woman. And she tells the police that Jesse had threatened to kill her if she told the police. So they ended up putting recording devices in this friend's room and set up like a whole stakeout thing. And the friend was able to get Jesse confessing on tape. So that'll do it. (laughs) That does it. Yep. He gets arrested. He ends up confessing to detectives. And in jail, he tells three other inmates that he did it. He also writes several other letters to another inmate telling him that he did it. So he's very much not ashamed to admit that he murdered Trudy. (laughs) Yeah. In Jesse's confession, he says that him and his brother, Marvin, go into the store with the intent of actually robbing and abducting her. So when they got into the store, they took the money from the cash register, dragged Trudy out and forced her into the trunk of their car, then drove her to a nearby barn, raped her and shot her in the head and then dumped her body by the river. They said that when they placed her body at the river, she was still alive. So they ended up shooting her again. And I don't know, maybe it was like an oh crap kind of thing, but it seems very not oh crappy. It's also definitely planned. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. There's a lot of premeditation there. While Jesse's like, I did it. I'm a part of this. We murdered her. Marvin's like, I had nothing to do with this. I'm not a part of this. I didn't do any of it. He says that he was actually home with his wife at the time of the abduction. And at first his wife was like, oh yeah, he was home with me. But then she ended up changing her story and admitting that she had lied because she had been afraid of him. I mean, yeah, that's such a tough position for her to be in. It very much so. So in March of 96, Jesse was convicted of kidnapping and first degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And in about a year later, in April 97, Marvin pleaded guilty to kidnapping and first degree murder. And he was sentenced to life in prison as well. So both of them are in prison for life. Now, police believe that Marvin was involved in the other murders. So they initially think that Marvin and Jesse were both responsible for the disappearances of Angie and Cheryl because this is, I think this is the main reason, Jesse mentions dumping the bodies of two other women in remote locations in multiple of his letters that he had been writing. Also, like he's just bragging about it, but no bodies have ever been found that could have been connected to him. So police believe that it could be Angie and Cheryl. Okay, that's fair. I mean, obviously, you don't want to count that out if you're not sure. Exactly. Marvin ended up dying in prison in 2017, so he won't be able to give any more information in relation to the cases. However, Jesse's the one that continued to talk. There's still a chance that Jesse could end up admitting to these disappearances. So the fourth and final case that I'm going to tell you about in this episode is the disappearance of Diana Brungart, which is believed to have been a crime of Marvin Cheney. So on March 11th, 1987, 18-year-old Diana Brungart was last seen in Crystal City, Missouri, leaving a store in the Twin City Mall. So Crystal City is specifically about three hours away from Max Creek, which is where Trudy had gone missing. 
However, this was multiple years in advance, like four years in advance. So I don't think that the location necessarily means a whole lot. Diana was working part-time at the Twin City Mall in one of the stores there. And she had just finished her shift around 10 o'clock at night and was walking out to the parking lot where her yellow 1982 Ford Escort was parked. At this time, she was a senior at Festus High School and had told coworkers that she needed to get home to study for a test. So she wasn't going to go and hang out with them after work. But Diana never ended up arriving home. Diana's parents, Marvin and Jane, obviously start to get concerned because Diana's not home by 1030. And this is unlike her. So they wait about an hour and for her to come home. But she doesn't come home. So her dad drives to the mall. And when he gets there, he sees, obviously, it's a yellow car. So he sees it immediately. And it's one of the only cars left in the parking lot by 1130 at night. And there's no sign of Diana. He's obviously concerned. So he drives back home and Diana's mom starts calling all of Diana's friends. But a lot of them were already asleep and obviously confused. Like, why are you calling us? She said she was going to go home and study for a test. So her parents end up going to sleep, I guess, trying to go to sleep. They go to bed, at least, with the idea that Diana must have spent the night at a friend's house and forgot to tell us. So we'll just wait until the morning. She'll be home. But when they woke up the next morning and they hadn't heard from her, they call the Crystal City Police Department and report her as missing. Police start investigating this and there's not a whole lot to go off of because Diana didn't have a boyfriend. I mean, she had a close group of friends that she hung out with. She didn't have any problems at school or home. She never ran away before. They said that she had recently started taking modeling classes on weekends. So there could have been somebody that she had met there. And they obviously decide she probably ran away. However, even though they had that thought, they did start investigating it immediately. So I'm happy for that. So they start checking with all the classmates and friends and everybody to see if anybody knew or if she had been knew where Diana was or knew if anything could have happened that would have caused her to run away. After talking with everybody, police were like, Diana definitely didn't leave on her own. They also actually had found out, too, that which I thought this was interesting or not interesting. I felt thought it was beneficial in their investigation is they found out that Diana had gotten into an argument with her parents a few weeks before and she didn't want to stay home. So she left and went to spend the night, spend the night with a friend. But even though she was mad at her parents, she did call her mom when she got there and said, hey, mom, this is where I'm going to be tonight. I'll be back the next day and said that she was just like upset and needed to get out of the house. Police searched Diana's car that they found at the mall, but there's no signs of foul play in the car or around the car. And so it's determined that she was probably abducted on the way to her car. They didn't find any of her personal belongings around there. They knew that she had her purse, but they didn't find that. They didn't find any of her clothing. There were a couple witnesses that had come through saying that they thought they'd seen Diana on the night that she had disappeared. One of the witnesses said that she was changing her child's diaper. And while she was doing that, she saw a man speaking with a young woman that had just come out of the mall, but she didn't pay much attention to the interaction. So she didn't have a good description of the man. But when showed a picture of Diana, she did say that was the woman that she had seen talking to this man. Some of her coworkers also said that Diana had waited on this customer. It was the last customer of the night. But it seemed like he kind of lingered around a little bit until she left after he had checked out. So they thought it was kind of suspicious, but they initially just thought he was waiting for another customer in the mall. But then they started to wonder if he had something to do with her disappearance. He was described as a white man, five foot ten inches tall, between 35 and 40 years old, 
clean shaven with dark hair, a dark complexion, and small bumps on his face. This description was similar to what the woman changing the baby's diaper could remember. Still to this day, this person remains unidentified. So police are still continuing to investigate this case. And then in 2007, they do make a little bit of progress when they interview a man who resembled the composite sketch of the man that had been seen at the mall that night. It was somebody who had lived in the area for a while. And at this time in 2007, this man was actually in jail for unrelated charges. We already talked about this man named Marvin Cheney, who was in jail for the murder of Trudy, which is how that's connected. You know, it does make sense for as violent of a crime as his was that there would probably be others. Oh, absolutely. And if Diana was the first and then Trudy, I mean, and then it would have been Cheryl and then Angie. I mean, that's four different people. Either way, like I said, Marvin is dead now. So there's not a whole lot of information that can necessarily be gathered unless Jesse decides to talk at some point. But there was only one person seen in relation to Diana's case. And because of the age of Marvin, you know, he was only 20 years old, either when he was arrested or when he committed the murder. I'm honestly not sure. So in 87, he would have been pretty young because that would have been like four years earlier. Diana's parents both ended up passing away. Her dad died in 2015. Her mom has died in 2017. They didn't get any information, obviously, about their daughter's disappearance. Her brother is still alive and still trying to find any sort of information, still keeping the police on their toes, trying to get them to continue to investigate. But as of 2022, this case is still unsolved. So information regarding Diana, she was 18 years old at her the time of her disappearance. She was about five foot six to five foot seven t- inches tall. She weighed about 108 pounds. She, at the time of her disappearance, was wearing a venture smock, a white shirt with colored print, bright turquoise pants, a short black boy's coat and brown loafers, and carrying an off-white cloth purse. She was described as a Caucasian female with blonde hair and hazel eyes, three small scars on her forehead, a V-shaped scar above the right corner of her mouth, and pierced ears. If you have any information surrounding her disappearance, you can contact the Crystal City Police Department at 314-937-4601. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.